Good morning, all you food people. And you're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And in today's program, we bring to you um, things wild and a little bit exotic. More than than a little bit exotic. And and the people who introduced them to us are are equally the same. One one from the island nation of Tassie, south of Australia, and and one originally from West Africa, and goodness knows where she is now. No, so, actually, this is so first, so, so first up, it's Annalise. The first up is Annalise Gregory, um, who is that we connected because of her work in, in, in living in Tasmania, which we happen to love. And you know, her book is "How Wild Things Are." The italics is over the wild. How wild things are. Well, Annalise Gregory, um, honestly, um, first of all, um, we could talk about a million different things. Uh, We're especially talking about your book, How Wild Things Are. And I love that, um, the italics on wild, um, because you are, aren't you? Me? I think about myself that way, but... Maybe to other people I am. Well, the subtitle of your book is Cooking, Fishing, and Hunting at the Bottom of the World. And as I said to you, uh, we have a lot in common because um, we've spent a lot of time, we lived in Australia, and we we spent a lot of time in Tasmania because our cousin Richard, who's our most favorite first cousin in the whole world, um, grows absolutely impeccable organic um, avocados in Devonport, which is at the other end of your Tasmanian island. And uh, I, I absolutely, I was so whisked away with nostalgia reading your book. Oh, that's good. That's a nice thing to happen. Oh, it was beautiful. I mean, I mean <laughs> the, 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 your background is um, we've crossed, not actual physical paths, but we've crossed over paths in a lot of different ways. I mean, um, you cooked everywhere. I mean, (laughs) you have wanderlust, I guess, inherited by your family. In fact, let's start with that. Your genealogy is rather interesting. Explain that. Uh, I'm Welsh, Chinese, and Dutch, and I grew up in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> it's not every day you find it. And not only that, but reading um, uh, recommendations and, and, and uh, whatnot from, from, um, about you, I mean, these super you know, multi-star Michelin chefs always comment that you're absolutely the best most talented chef that ever came through their kitchen. How do you feel about that? Uh, I feel like they all said really nice things. <laughs> they did. Um, sometimes it makes me feel I should still be in a professional kitchen. Yeah, what is the status, by the way, of um, what's happening with, are you open or closed or or what in, in uh, your restaurant? I am not- currently in in between restaurants. Um, so I left Franklin and then COVID happened 
And then now I, I don't know, I finished the book and I'm filming a TV show and I'm just doing other stuff and kind of trying to build a 10-seater restaurant at my house. But um, it's, it's slow progress. It's slow going. Where, where are you hanging out specifically these days? You're in the Huon Valley or are you still in Hobart or are you, are you consigned to Port Arthur because of you being punished <laughs> for something? Or? <laughs> I'm in the Huon, so I'm about 40 minutes south of Hobart, uh, like in just bang smack in the Huon Valley, like close to the river, um, on the dead end dirt road in the middle of nowhere. Well, you know, I mean, I, every time we were in um, Tasmania, I mean, our, our mainland um, friends always looked down on Tasmania like we were going to go slumming if we went to visit there. Uh, but we wondered why more people didn't go there. I mean, it was like it was so empty. It's like you owned the whole country. I mean, the whole island. That's, that's it definitely wrote, feels that way. That's one of my favorite things about it. Yeah, I know. I could tell from reading your book. Um, <laughs> but you know, growing up in New Zealand, you probably were predisposed to that sort of um, lifestyle anyhow. And, and I think you got kind of, I don't want to say sidetracked, because you built a wonderful uh, reputation and career. But the, the, the tweezer cuisine was not what shaped you? Uh, I mean, it did in, in cooking ways, like my professional life, but no, then the tweez- you're right, the tweezer cuisine wasn't what shaped me, and it's not what I came back to, I suppose. Yeah. But, you know, that reading this book, I mean, I just, it, I got so nostalgic, because it's, Tasmania is such a gorgeous country. I mean, country, a gorgeous island, and Australia is wonderful. Itself. Um, you you but, remember the first first time we went there together, and we, and we rented a car and we drove from Devonport to Hobart. But uh, along the way, the exhaust on the rental car started. Oh, I to, forgot about started that. To be re, started to be really noisy, and I felt like we, we we must have we must have hit a pothole that was a mother and father of size. But it turned out when we got to Hobart, we went to the, I think it was Hertz Depot, and said, there's something wrong with this car, it's making a lot of noise. So they just calmly gave us a new one. <laughs> you know, one of the... Which I thought was pretty good. You captured this attitude, this Tasmanian attitude, so well, at least. I mean, it's just, there's sort of nothing quite like it. I just... Um, one of the things that grabbed me about your book, however, that was the picture of you with a wallaby. The idea of cooking a wallaby really just about slayed me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm a very adventurous eater, but, I mean, the thing that got me in, uh, was that there were all these adorable wallabies as roadkill in Tasmania. Yeah, I've never had that. I've had so Pardon? Like some, there's so many of them. Sometimes they're almost in um, plague proportions, and so they do they do get culled by hunters. So the thing is, I'm just like, well, if they're going to shoot them anyway, we may as well eat them. Yeah, I think so. As I said, when we lived there, uh, it was illegal um, in I guess it was just um, in Victoria. I don't know. They eat rue. They just they just legalized it 
in Victoria. And, and, and uh, we, okay. We had, I think we, this thing is. Mm. That, that was a long time ago. It was a, we ate it at the Paul Bocuse restaurant in Melbourne, and it has just just become legal. Oh, that's really interesting. That was a that was a it was a long time ago. But there 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 are a lot of interesting characters in Tasmania. One one I wanted to ask you if you ever if you ran, if you ever ran across Dr. Andrew Peary. Oh yeah. No, I haven't, but I feel like I know that name. Well, he he essentially invented the Tasmanian wine industry. Ah, okay. All right. It would be and, through, and people, um, yeah, white people, Tasmania. And people, say, people said, you must be crazy, and no one can grow grapes in Tasmania. So he did a doctorate in the, at the wine school in New South Wales, was the first person to get a doctorate in enology anywhere in Australia. And he said, well, I, I think we can grow grapes here. So he just went ahead and did it. And the only sad, the, well. the sad thing, the sad, the sad thing about his career, is that he was flourishing. He was doing very well, and then he and his wife had a falling out, and and he, he lost half his business. Right, he started a new one. So. He started a new one. Nine Nine Thousand Wines was was one of his wines. Oh, well, you okay. know, wow. There's so many things I want to ask you. Um, you. We're talking in the book about um, anxiety. Do you know Kat Kinsman? Mm. I've met her at some of the mad camps in Copenhagen. Yeah, I've not read her book, but we've interviewed her. And her book's called Hello, Anxiety. And, And I think that that's just one of many issues affecting chefs, mentally and emotionally affecting chefs. Um, you've fought through an awful lot of issues and have come to where you're resting in a place where you're comfortable, but you're still on the edge. You're, you have wanderlust and so many influences coming at you from all different directions. How are you dealing with all of that now? Um, I don't know. I suppose I try and, I know, like I recognize the triggers now. I guess that's a really big thing. I suppose it's all been a journey of kind of um, cooking, but also self-discovery. Um, that now I recognize kind of what I need and what I need is for things to be like a little bit slower, to not be, you know, quite so hectic. I know the things that, that really bring out that stress in me. And um, I know I've been trying to like build a life that's what I want it to be, I suppose, or like how I envisaged it. And um it's a bit more difficult than I'd ideally like it to be sometimes, and there's a lot of work involved. But um, like it's at the moment, it's 9 a.m. in Tasmania, and it's sunny, and like my goats are outside, and there's <laughs> baby chickens, and I'm having a coffee, and like it's really nice and calming and beautiful, and that is something that I needed and wanted. How did you organize this book? Um, let's talk a little bit about that because we're, we're really. Yeah trying to introduce people to this wonderful book. Um, you organized it. Well, there's the introduction. And then how else did you organize it? You had your different um, uh, influences, sort of, right? 
Yeah, I just wanted to do a book about um, all the things that I was learning and cooking within Tasmania. Not so much restaurant foods, like there's a couple of dishes that I would cook at Franklin in there, but it's a lot just things that I would cook at home or on the beach or if I was out fishing with friends. Um, and but then uh, the publisher Jane asked me to write a list of like my favorite recipes and things I would want to include, and then I wrote a list of all the things that I liked making at home, and then realized that. You know, some of them I used to, I learned to cook in New Zealand. Some of them I picked up along the way in London or in France or in Morocco or Spain. And um, it seems like there were a lot of different influences and I didn't know how to make it into a cohesive um, a cohesive book. And that was where we came up with uh, putting the recipes into the different sections according to, you know, like when they kind of came into my life, I suppose. Well, I mean, I, I think that, that I res- responded mostly to your recounting of your life experiences, um, although I actually have found recipes that I may be able to do in, in this. Cause I, was, I was looking because I have a whole rack of, of um, lamb riblets, I, and I've looked them up, and um, the, the recipes that I found on the Internet are like cooking it from three to four hours, and it's not the kind of cooking I do. <laughs> Yours mm-hmm. is much shorter. Uh, yeah, and that was purely because we were buying whole lambs and when I was working at Franklin, and I still get whole lambs for home now and share them with my neighbors. And, you know, after you cut it down for all of, like, the prime, like, roasting cuts, there's all of these other pieces left behind that you have to find things to do with. And that was how the lamb ripper came about. Let me, let me, let me tell you a little story about, about Miss Anne. And, and you'll, you'll relate to this, I'm sure. But, me. Uh, when, when she was when she was first in Australia with me, so that's that's a story for another day. But she used she used to go to the butcher shop and buy <laughs> and buy and buy whole lambs. This is this is in Geelong, <laughs> where, where there are plenty of whole lambs out there. And a whole a whole lamb cost I think thirteen dollars. No, it was under three <laughs> Australian dollars. I'm sorry. But, but, but anyway. She, she had a she, she made a chart of the, of what the lamb carcass would look like, cut up, and then she would go to the butcher and she would say, "I want it done like that." And it was really funny. She said, "Every every time I go in there, all the butchers are busy. They ran away. <laughs> they, all, they all they all ran off to another part of the shop where they where they wouldn't have to deal with." cutting up a lamb for this crazy lady. <laughs> well, now, now, you wouldn't ever do anything like that, would you? Um, I bought she a, goes, a saw for home so that I can cut them up at home. <laughs> I don't know if that's weird or not. You're, you're much more adventurous in terms of sourcing um, what you're cooking than, than we are, obviously. And you're, you're better at things. I mean, tell us about, you talk a lot about this diving that you're doing. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, that's a skill that you, you started out not being very prepared for since you couldn't swim very well and didn't, that were afraid of water. Uh, yeah, so I had never um, really been a diver, just like occasionally if I was on the Great Barrier Reef or something, and they're like, you know, go for a dive and look at the fish. Um, and I thought that when I lived in Sydney that the water was too cold <laughs> to get into, so I never really went to the 
Um, so then I moved to Tasmania. It's kind of ironic, really. Um, and then one day my sous chef was like, oh, you know, do you want to go out and go for a dive on the weekend? He was like, I go spearfishing and I go and collect like sea urchin and abalone. And I was like, I'm sorry, wait a minute. You can just go out and collect sea urchin and abalone? He was like, yeah, I do it all the time. I was like, okay. So I borrowed a wetsuit that was way too big for me. We went out to Fossil Cove. <laughs> oh, yeah, you noticed worst, that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wintry days ever and um, we got sea urchin and ate it on the beach off a dive knife and I was just really hooked yeah we, I mean you, you you do this all regularly see I mean it's what what I never experienced that you experienced there is uh, this casual uh, I don't know what you call it where you say you know Tasmania you just, somebody will always have an extra room and an extra bed and you just plop down, you go and catch your dinner. And I never experienced that, even though Cousin Richard is pretty off the grid. Uh, I think it's about, um, well, I drive around Tassie a lot and then just you have to be really open to it and also prepared, like have an overnight bag that just constantly lives in your car. Um so I go out and meet suppliers a lot and things like that. Like I'm always up for an adventure or a road trip or, you know, to find new products. Yeah, I mean, you you pack all the stuff in your car. Tell us about that. <laughs> you have what you need in case of any kind of encounter you have, huh? Uh, like at the moment, my car has my dive gear in it. It has a fly fishing rod. Um, it has books of cookbooks. Um, an overnight bag. Um, sometimes it has like a walk burner in it or something, and that's just that's pretty normal. <laughs> um, you know, you you give a good nod to seaweed. I mean, um, wakame butter. I mean, I, I that's become a staple in my kitchen. Wakame, dried. You use it fresh. Oh, mine too. You what? Where do you get yours from? Um, Maine, mainly. Yeah, it's, it's called off the coast of Maine. Well, because, yeah, it's an invasive pest species in Tasmania, so um, I go out and collect it and also buy it from um, a fisherman that um, dries it and freeze-dries it. And then, yeah, it's become a staple in my kitchen, too. It's just like a new thing that gives heaps of umami to cooking, and everyone's always like, oh, what is this? What is this that you're using? Now, t- tell, our, tell our listeners about oysters... Which grow vertical? <laughs> mussels. It was the mussels, like, wasn't it? No, oysters too. Oysters, right? okay. Yeah. Like the wild and, and, ones or the angazis? No, farmed ones he's talking about. Oh, um, the farmed ones that I use, yeah. Sorry, tell me they're, your story. They're, well, they're, they're just one class. We, we discovered, we thought it was rather intriguing because in in the rest of the world oysters are flat, but but in but in Tassie they grow vertically, and we never were on, entirely on sure why. On ropes, they do it. On ropes. Oh, yeah. I haven't actually seen that. The ones that I use, they farm them in um like kind of swinging flat baskets that like move with oh. the tidal movement. Oh, okay. Huh. And there's a lot of wild ones uh, down here as well. Right. Oh, you hear them, and they're out there all over, right? There's, yeah, everywhere. There's a, there's, a, there's a place on the east coast called Fraser, is it Fraser Ney? Yeah, it is. That we, that we kind of stopped in 
but only briefly because we we were we were headed to Devonport from from Hobart, actually from from Port Arthur. The the simple way around is called go up one coast, cut cut across to the left, and after all, you're not in a hurry. So what does what does it matter if it takes three days for you to get to Devonport? <laughs> Well, that's the spirit. Okay. Um, yeah, there's lots of the, little oyster shacks. You can just go and buy a dozen oysters and go down to, like, the ocean and just open them. So I also always have an oyster knife in my car, too. Um, <laughs> I love that. You're really prepared for the life you lead. I, I mean, would you ever consider going back into that? I mean, you worked in that high-pressure restaurant kitchen world of Sydney, which is, like, Talk about pressure. Uh, there's a lot of bits of it that I missed, like the camaraderie of the kitchen, and um, it's also really weird not working nights at the moment. I'm still just adjusting to that. But then there's also a lot of pieces that I don't miss, like the 12 to 16-hour days and um, things mm-hmm. like that. And it's nice to kind of wake up somewhere beautiful on the weekend and be able to go and do outdoors things and go diving and climb mountains and stuff. So I don't really want to give that up. Right. Um yeah, the uh, we we didn't ever eat in uh, Key, which is where you worked in Sydney. Although um, we we know uh, Josh Nyland from um, um, what's it called St. Peter. <laughs> Peter. Peter's. Why why am I blocking on that? St. Peter's, and uh, we also interviewed um, the the chef from Fred's, which is just like oh, a few steps away. Hmm? Yeah, right, right. You know, Daniel. We all we all know each other. <laughs> the cooking world is. Well, world. you would, I guess. So, um, I mean, then you you knew all the um, the Kiwi chefs in London too. So that's. So, but what other influences would you list? You have them in your book, but I just wanted you to tell um, our, our listeners what some of the other influences in your cooking. I mean, you have such an extraordinarily. Um, multifaceted uh, influence range in your cooking style and in your lifestyle. Uh, Just highlight some of them. Uh, Well, definitely there's kind of a Cantonese bent from um, my mother and um, my grandmother and my great-aunties when I was growing up. And then I suppose the next thing would be kind of moving to London and, the you know, like lots of um, French food and working in lots of French restaurants in Paris. And then there's also a bit of, um, I spent some time in Spain and Morocco. and um, But the chefs that had the biggest influence on me were probably Peter Gilmore from Key and then uh, Michel Brass. Yeah, you talk a lot about Brass. I mean, he was like a giant, right? Sorry? He's he a, like giant a giant chef. I mean, he's just, his oh, influence yeah. is so wide-ranging. I mean, how many times have we interviewed somebody whose major influence in their whole entire career was him? Oh, um, yeah, from the first time I saw his cookbook when I was about 18 in a bookshop in London, I just remember being totally astounded by it and just really, I didn't really fully understand it, but I, I really wanted to and I was just totally blown away and that continued for like quite a few years and in the end I wound up working for him, which I was very lucky to. Oh yeah, that must be really I just I can imagine just how extraordinarily talented you are, considering where you've actually 
been sought by some of these chefs. I mean, as I said, they're giants in their field. Um, so you've been influenced by all these things, but the, probably the biggest influence is just the natural world, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, what I cook now is kind of a cuisine of, like, necessity and, um, I don't know, I suppose just, like, yeah, the natural world, just what's around you. Like, I well, just I'm, cook I'm curious about, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about, you know, what you're going to do next. I mean, where do, what are your thoughts about what you might be doing? Oh, at the moment, to be honest, I don't know. Like, I never imagined five years ago I would be living in Tasmania or making a television show or writing a cookbook. So kind of everything is um, still all up in the air. Um, The idea was to um, open a 10-seater restaurant in an abandoned shed at my house um, and just use, like, hyper-local produce and um, try and grow as much of it as I can myself and just do a couple of lunches a week. And that's still the base idea. It's just happening very slowly at the moment. Well, you've, you've made a lot of good buddies. Um, one of the things that I was really impressed by in your book is that you talk about, you, you could say that in um, Sydney, um, the camaraderie was very strong. But, um, and you had a, a small but dedicated circle of uh, chef friends. Um, but you say in Tasmania, which I think is true, is that you become friends with many, many people, just about everybody you meet. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, like even just where I live now, uh, like especially last year, I've met so many more people in my local community. Like, you know, my next door neighbors are um, like natural wine distributors. And then I'm friends with, you know, there's a potter up the road that I met. Sorry, people from the television crew are arriving and it's about to get a bit noisy. Um, please excuse the noise of doors opening and closing. Um, well, just, you definitely need a, make a sure you tell people. us about the television show before you uh, conclude. I want to know what, what you're talking about. You're, go ahead. Uh, so the show is called A Girl's Guide to Hunting, Fishing and Wild Cooking and essentially um, we go on lots of adventures around Tasmania, meet lots of local people, sometimes chef friends come down, of mine come down from the mainland and cook with us or I take them on adventures, um, like people from my past um, and like just friends that I really enjoy cooking with. So we kind of do all the stuff that I just really enjoy doing in the weekends, like go abalone diving, cray diving, um, I cook with, you know, wakame, seaweed jam. I do a lot of stuff at my house, lots of cooking outdoors. Um, yeah, pretty much my normal life outside the restaurant. Where did you no, I, thought, I was impressed with the fact that you actually agreed to uh, escort uh, Gordon Ramsay around. <laughs> that was a bit nerve-wracking. <laughs> uh, no. where, 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 where does your program broadcast? Uh, it's not it out yet. Off? It will be um, on SBS Food in Australia uh, from May, I believe. We're about halfway through filming. Great. Well, I, I just want to say to our listeners that um, you're going to be fascinated by the contrast of, of life experience um, with Annalise Gregory, chef Annalise Gregory, and the book How wild and italic how wild things are and cooking fishing and hunting at the bottom of the world 
And I think you have to be open to the freshness of the Tasmanian experience, which we know and love, and uh, so does Annalise. And then we haven't even talked about the recipes yet. Um, if you want to know how to cook a rooster, it's here. Uh, if you want pickled mussels and octopus with extra um, exo aioli, it's here. Um, what what would you say about who should approach this cookbook, Annalise? Uh, I know, I suppose people living in a semi-rural environment like me, but also people that just want to um, make the most of the seasons and learn to preserve. Like there's a lot of things that I would still do even if I was living in the city and a lot of recipes like graffiti is super easy. You can make it anywhere. Same with like gougers, you know, potato galette. Like, oh, the there's gougers a lot of recipe is great, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's just um, changeable and can be made anywhere. And, and let me put in let me put in a plug for my for my cousin Stephen Shaw. <laughs> Dick Shaw. Avocados. Hold on a minute, Sprayton. Yes, S P R E T O N. Avocados. I love this. And, and I'm not sure I'm going to cook a wallaby, however. <laughs> congratulations, by the way, on succeeding in connecting with On The Menu Radio at 5 p.m. in the afternoon, our time, when it's worth whatever time, whatever time of the day it was where you are now. And we, and, we, and we should let you go to whatever it was you were doing, because I'm sure it was probably more important than this. And, and Elise, you're going to go on my list of people I'd like to sit down and have dinner with someday. Oh, that's really nice. Thank you. <laughs> there are lots of people I wouldn't have dinner with, but I just I think we'd have a wonderful time. <laughs> Thank you so much. For- Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Back and next up, we have Zoe and Doyum. That's me. I tried it because I'm not seeing very well. I thought she was just called Zoe Garner. No. Because <laughs> I guess that's where she's from. Anyhow, Zoe is like one of the most confident women I've ever interviewed, and uh, she has a fascinating background. Uh, she's uh, uh, half Irish and half Ghanaian, and was essentially raised in the U.K., in England. So she has a a lot of different perspectives on the world of food, and the book is Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. Um, Zoe, Zoe, John, help me with your name, please. Um, It's Zoe Adjonia. Ajonia. I mean, I don't know why I couldn't say that. That's sort of simple. It's a phonic, isn't it? It's Anyhow, Zoe, some of my favorite people have been named Zoe, by the way. <laughs> I don't know why. But Zoe um, means life. Oh, does it really? I never knew that. Zoe that Anne knows is a potential Olympic swimmer. So. Oh, yeah, that's uh, Katie Zoe, yeah. 
And Zoe was also um, our son Adam's first girlfriend in, in preschool. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then there well, are watch, others. Watch out, watch out, Zoe. You might lose a wife. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me this. Zoe, um, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen is the book that we're going to be talking about, which is subtitled Traditional Ghanaian Recipes, Remixed for the Modern Kitchen. Uh, and it's also your business, isn't it? I mean, long-term business. Yeah, so I founded Zoe's Ghana Kitchen back in 2010, and it was... Oh, it's a long time ago. Yeah, it's the first contemporary West African supper club, pop-up, and restaurant in the UK. And I have a cookbook, as you say, by the same name, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. And yeah, it's, you know, it's an evangelized, basically I've spent the last years evangelizing about the amazing flavors and ingredients from West Africa. Because yeah, I'm well, there, I mean, every time I get a new book, it's, it's uh, or there's a new restaurant, it's all West Africa. Oh. Do, you, do, you, do you know the guy from Senegal, Zoe? Which guy? Pierre there's, 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 there's a guy from Senegal who wrote a book, and he's very, very much in love with West African cuisine, just as you are. Yeah, I think it's probably Pierre Chayam you're talking about. His book, it is, probably, yeah. Yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has one book called Phonio and um, another book called Senegal. I think. <laughs> what a funny idea to call his book Senegal. Huh? No, no way. You, <laughs> no way you'd call your book Ghana, I suppose. Huh? <laughs> well, I call my book Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. <laughs> you, know, you have to give people a now. Uh, who? You you have a sort of mission with with um, your business and um, your your pop ups and your uh, book. Um, it, it is kind of disgraceful that there's not much known about Ghana. And it's, from reading your book, it's a very versatile and diverse um, regional cuisine and um, cooking style. Yeah, I mean, Ghana is a huge, huge territory. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you've got all these regional things. I mean, I, yeah, so... Yeah, um, it's, a, it's, it's a huge country, but also it has at least 56 different tribes and dialects, and like each really? of those tribes has its own nuance um, of cooking uh-huh. style according to, you know, the geography and the landscape and the environment that's local to them, because the landscape does really shift. Um, you know, on the south of coast obviously we have the Atlantic so you have this rich abundance of seafood um, and then sort of oh, yeah. in the more eastern territories up along the Volta you know there's a real reliance on tilapia and pike is the main the main and only kind of seafood there and then in the north where it's very arid and dry there's a lot of reliance on fermented foods and um, pulses you know so the, the diet varies greatly um, and obviously it's impossible to encapsulate all of those differences in one book so for me, it was, you know, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen it, it is also, I must point out, it's very much my personal relationship with the ingredients and foods, and that is very much through my lens. So while some of the dishes in there are very traditional, the majority are, are a translation, really, because they have to be, because I'm based in the West, I have a Western lens, um, and I talk about that, I think. <laughs> yes, well, you do, and, and, and you would. Um, now, you, now, where, you, now, where are all the cocoa trees? Where are all the cocoa trees? <laughs> aren't, there a lot of co- aren't there a lot of cocoa trees in... Cocoa, yeah, Ghana is cocoa. a huge, 
huge export um, of cocoa for sure. Oh, cocoa, that's most, right, yeah. Most of the cocoa around the world will be West African cocoa. The horror of that situation is the fact that you know, many of the farms up until very recently and, and still recently, um, you know, the, the farmers who grow that cocoa can't even buy the chocolate that it makes, you know, because, um, and that's been true for Ghanaians for a long time, that, that narrative where, um, you know, big multinational companies come in and take what's good and then repurpose it for the West and make it unaffordable then for the people who originally, um, you know, created the, the core ingredient. And, you know, even if you look at Swiss chocolate and a lot of highly regarded European chocolates, it's based on African cocoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm trying, um, I'm trying to change that. You know, it's part of the many, many things that I'm doing to the work. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I was going to say you have a lot of different missions here. <laughs> As I'm reading well, this, I mean, the one mission really that is decolonizing the food industry. Um, and you know, I have to do that wearing lots of different hats because there, there are limits to all the vehicles I have. You know. Um, so on one hand, you know, Ghana Kitchen's online shop does the work of educating people on the ingredients and the source of those ingredients. Yeah. Um, it's kind of overwhelming, but, you know, I think you point out that, uh, and I think we all know that the more people are looking to cook, um, well, African in general, and particularly, say, Ghana food, the more available the ingredients are going to be. It's a chicken and the egg kind of thing, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, when I started, you know, back in when I wrote the cookbook, which was around originally 2015, 2016, um, you know, the, the accessibility of these ingredients was much less than it is now. And so one of the, the difficult things for me was having to, and, and consistently throughout my career, honestly, has been having to sub ingredients that actually are the heart of the Ghanaian part of the, <laughs> the dish. Um, mm-hmm. You know, often with food writing and recipe writing, you're asked to make substitutions and replace things. But then, obviously, when it comes to a niche cuisine like this, it does it does harm the dish and harm the recipe a little bit. So I wanted to have a the conversation with my you know my customers um, about the, the importance of a transparent supply chain and the importance of honouring um, and giving wealth back to the people that made the food, but also on the other hand to be able to um, you know, fill the gap so that if, if they want to cook this cuisine, then here you are, here it is, buy it from me, and um, you don't have to have a substitution. So, you know, the, the Ghana Kitchen right now is trying to fill those two gaps. Um, and, you know, my work generally is about uplifting and other people who provide these ingredients and platforming those people as well. Well, you, you have a really fascinating background. I mean, you are, your, your mother was Irish, she is Irish still, yeah. <laughs> she is. So, well, my mother's been dead, so. Um, and, and, and your father was from Ghana. But even though you were born and spent early years in Accra, you actually grew up in the UK? Yeah, so I'm a third culture kid, um, which is a new lexicon for people like me, who, you know, both my parents were immigrants to the UK, so I'm the first English person in my family. Um, oh, really? I mean, I'm, I'm the first, a lot of things in my family. I'm the first to go to university. I'm the first to get a master's. And, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of firsts in there. But, um, yeah, you know, the context of, you know, my two immigrant parents arriving to the UK in the 70s at a time where, you know, then they were living in parts of London where, 
um, like Kilburn is where they met, and you know, signs all over the place saying no blacks, no Irish, and no dogs. Um, it was a very, very hostile environment for them, and they were very young immigrants looking to like establish a life for themselves, and it was difficult, right? So, you know, that informs a lot of who I am and how I see the world as well. And I think that's why I see the politics and everything because, it, you know, my my identity is literally that. <laughs> You, you must really be bonding with the Meghan Markle about this time. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, did you ever see such a, a, a hoopla in your whole entire life? <laughs> I know. I mean, listen, the thing is with the UK that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, <laughs> the, the monarchy is... And, in, you know, it's an institution built on white supremacy at the end of the day. I mean, it's, it's core to the foundation of what England is and the UK is. And, you know, it was always going to be hard for Meghan Markle to come into that as a black woman, but especially as an American black woman with obviously not having quite the handle on the history of that empire and the country. So she stepped into... Now, was Ghana a colony or not? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We just celebrated 64 years of independence. He was the first one to break away. Oh, that's right. You did tell me that, Rabbit. Well, you, you may have gathered that, that Peter is the English, um, from Yorkshire, no less. And, oh, um, Yorkshire. Yeah, How do you like your Yeah, and, and so, um, I mean, I, I had this nice entrance in the family that his mother couldn't believe he was marrying not only an American, but an Italian-American. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of rocked it. In fact, when I was pregnant with Adam, um, my mother-in-law sent him, Adam, our son, a pink blanket because she was so sure that he was going to be um, a, a girl and then was totally appalled that he was the first Hague ever born who didn't have blue eyes. <laughs> So I know a little bit about this firsthand. <laughs> well, yeah, so, I've got my wife is Jewish, Italian, American, New Yorker, so that's, you know, <laughs> she's a whole energy ball herself. But um, uh-huh. Well, you must have had fun growing up, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, yeah, right this time. But, well, you know, I, I think you, you sound like you have fun. Um, back to the book. Um I was loving this section called How to Use This Book. Why don't you tell our listeners what you're recommending about using the book? <laughs> My goodness. I can't remember. <laughs> you can't remember um, what you said. <laughs> I mean, it was written a long time ago. Tell me what I said and I'll tell you why. I don't have a book in front of me. I'm sorry. How, how are we supposed to I know? Mean, <laughs> what I wanted people to do is I wanted this book to be a resource more than anything. So a report. That's be, interesting. I, I okay. didn't want it to be a didactic kind of. Chemistry. Yeah, you say that you did not want it to be didactic. Okay. Yeah. And so, so and and it's basically the book is for anybody with an interest in food and an inquisitive palate. And of, of course, I mean you you have the personal rapport here of your food journey. And I love that. That how old were you when you finally went to Ghana? Um, do you mean apart from my early years when I went back? Yeah. Two thousand fourteen, um, you said. I think it was twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen, fourteen. Yeah, in the book it says twenty fourteen. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Anyhow, there you go. Um, um, but yeah. that must it's have been a, a, a big cultural jolt 
um, with all these new foods and new um, uh, cultural um, expressions and, and so forth. Although you do say that you did cook with your father. Thank God you got a father who cooked, right? Yes. So, I mean, as I said, my dad's Ghanaian. So the big thing with my dad was the fact that he used to bring these ingredients home, um, but he would only cook for himself. But also yeah. I, I could see with him when he was cooking, I could see the relationship with home for him. Right. So it was this moment of going uh-huh. home to Accra and going home to Ghana. And because we didn't have any Ghanaian family in London, it was that moment that I attached to in terms of having a relationship with the culture, because I spent a lot of my childhood in Ireland being able to go back and forth really easily, you know, because it's a short distance and it used to be very cheap to travel there. Um, and we didn't have that facility to go to Ghana. So from a very, very young age, you know, the food from Ghana was my access to the culture. And, and from that point, it just continued on. And um, so learning next to my dad was more of an observational thing. But, um, you know, I was cooking from a young age anyway, because in those you know, I was always helping my mum with stuff, but also in the Irish family, you know, there's always women in the kitchen and I was part of the women in the kitchen situation. Yeah, right. So so cooking for other people and nourishing other people was always part of my MO, really. Um, and then going back in 2013, 2014, sorry, that was more... Yeah, there was a thing there with me reconnecting with my family and roots on one hand, but also there was this desire to expand my knowledge of the cuisine and the ingredients. And I was beautifully surprised to find out how abundantly rich and diverse the ingredients were and how much was plant-based. And, you know, I would just travel around going into chop bars. I don't know if you know what a chop bar is, but it's like a little hut on the side of the road where people cook. And I would go into these places and eat. And if I liked the food, I would go put my head in the kitchen and say, can you show me how you made this? And you yeah. know, many of the recipes in the book are from that experience of doing this. See, that. everybody says they do that. Nobody's ever invited me. And we travel a lot. I'm used to. And nobody's ever invited me into their kitchen. <laughs> oh, I wasn't invited. I asked. You have to ask. And <laughs> I have to ask. You have to ask. Um, well, now yeah. I'm, I'm taking it that part of the lushness of, of your food um, is because it has such a broad range of spices and herbs, not all of them natu- natural to Ghana, but brought in from other places, right? Yeah, and you know, you can't talk about that without talking about colonialism, obviously, and the slave trade and the spice trade, but all of those things brought with them ingredients to West Africa and across Africa, frankly. You know, rice wasn't really indigenous to most parts of Africa. It was a cash crop brought in from India um, by slave traders. Um, Chilies were bought by the Portuguese to West Africa. Um, you know, so... The, the, the Portuguese were everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the Dutch, you know, the Dutch were, were there and obviously the British, so... And you can, see, and even even now, there's a really strong presence of Chinese across different parts of Africa, and you can see that influence even in Ghana. You can see that Indomie noodles has become a staple in Nigeria, and is closely followed by Ghana soon too. And thing, even things like wache, which is one of the recipes from the book, it has spaghetti on the plate, which obviously is yes. in no way indigenous. Indigenous. Yeah, Ghana, I mean, it's, but... it's kind of hard to get my head around some of these dishes because there's so many um, elements in them, um, and, and I, I, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time on food, 
And you can imagine if you know, this, this gig with the podcast has been 18 years in the making. And before that, I was a, a restaurant uh, critic for an editor for a city magazine and, you know, the whole thing. But here you have, I don't know what page it is, 21. You have other staple ingredients and flavorings. And I looked over the whole list and I did not recognize a single ingredient except ground nuts. <laughs> Well, there you go. You know, that's what I mean by it being a resource. You know, it's like there's still so much people don't know that is available, you know, and that's the message of the book. It's like, look at all these wondrous things that you're not using yet. Um, and, yeah, that's what I wanted to provide, a resource. And if you look at the back, I even provide places where you can get those ingredients. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, today with the Internet, you can get anything anyhow. Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's like, I mean, I'm trying to get across this idea um, that anybody reading this book is going to get probably a university education in ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not that. it's not complicated. No, but it has so much information. It's packed with information that's actually new. That's actually and, and, new. yeah because because that information wasn't available back in 2017 and and for lots of people it's still hard you know, it's not our cuisine still hasn't reached the platform where enough people know the basics of it you know a, a lot of people might be able to tell you what are the fundamentals of Mexican food or they think they can or Thai food um, or Indian food right because those cuisines have crossed over into the mainstream in the UK and Europe and the global north. North America, obviously, but um, you know, there's question marks about how well they're translated necessarily and whether yeah. they are authentic <laughs> or not. But um, but people have a sense of them, don't they? And you know, this is what the mission was back in 2010: it's bring African food to the masses, so people know what this food is, they know where to get it, they know how to cook it, um, mm -hmm. and, and and then let's talk about where, where this food can go next. Because I'm very much in the business of new African cuisine, which is like pushing this forward. Um, and there's some amazing chefs around the world doing some fantastic work on the, you know, in African gastronomy. And this is like its own thing now, you know. And we've done that work in the last 20 years, whereas the French had, what, five, six hundred years to develop their cuisine? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I always got a kick out of that 50 best restaurants thing. Out of the entirety of Africa, they named one restaurant, and it was owned by an Englishman. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> Cultural appreciation. I mean, that's another oh, They also about. had one Russian restaurant, which I thought was pretty funny, too. Um, you, you, yeah. you, you're really detail-oriented. I mean, you really talk about cooking yams. It's very important in, in the Ghana cuisine. Yeah, and by yams we're talking about an actual tuba yam, not sweet potatoes, which is what we're going to call yam. Incidentally... Oh, most reason, people don't, don't even know that, by the way. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I don't know if you know the history of yam, but obviously yeah, sweet potatoes were, were brought over as well. Um, most varieties were brought over with the slave trade, and they were called yams because they were the closest thing, um, you know, to yam. But they're not yam. But yes, tuna yam in, in particular. You know, also, you could have a cookbook just on yam. 
You know, you, oh, really you could. could these, these, these ingredients are so versatile, and I think that's what I wanted to show in the book is the versatility. So, yeah, I've, I've got a section that is yam five ways. There's also a guide to showing people how to buy yam in the grocery shop, you know. Um, it's a little bit cutesy, but um, and plantain <laughs> five ways as well because you know you could have a cookbook with a hundred recipes for plantain on its own. Um, yeah, but, well. you know, people weren't ready for that in 2015, but they might be ready for it in 2022. <laughs> well, if you're going to do another cookbook, I gather. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got it, all right. Um, so. Now, here's something that um, actually I've started seeing a little bit more about uh, the soundtracks. And even, mm. you know, like um, people reviewing restaurants and chefs giving their favorite um, uh, soundtrack. That um, you, you have one, Ghana Go Home, a soundtrack to cook to. African traditional music. So it's it's not just, I mean, it's very elaborate, this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I have a soundtrack to cook to, and I have a soundtrack to eat to. Um, because, look, when, when I started doing the supper clubs at my, my home, like, I really put oh, a lot Oh, that's right, the supper club, yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I put a lot of attention into creating an experience. So it really was, it was more than the food. Like the food was like a launching point for a conversation into the culture. And that has always been the case for me. Um, and I, it was about creating an, a sort of an immersive environment. So I put a lot of energy and time into the aesthetics of, of the decoration, you know, and, and I created a playlist so that people felt, immersed for that moment in Ghanaian culture. So, you know, African art, African fabric, African music, um, throughout the, you know, throughout those dinners was, was an important part of it. And so I couldn't not put it in the cookbook, you know, because again, cookbook is a tool, as I keep saying, a resource. Um, in my head, it's an access to the culture. Um, yeah, well, that's, also, I think that's right. Yeah. Now, yeah. is this, is this altered by your Western experience, this is, was very familiar. It popped out at me. Grilled sardines in a spiced roasted tomato sauce. Mmm, that's delicious. Yeah, this <laughs> sounds like something I was raised on, to tell you the truth, which would have been Sicilian. Yeah, right. So um, this is the thing. The other thing that people think is like, or, or then, you know, it's particularly there were some terrible stereotypes around what, you know, African food, because we were still in the phase of this monolith description for 56 different cuisines. Um, and there was a lot of negative stereotypes about what that food was. So I really also wanted to show in the book how vibrant and diverse and how rich the diet can be, you know. And yes, you know, bystard sardines is kind of a ubiquitous kind of concept, whether it's in South America, in Africa, in Italy, or, you know, in the far, in South Asia it's a dish everyone can resonate with. And, and most commonly in Ghana, we serve that with kenke, which is a fermented maize dough, right? But in South America, um, the very same process creates a tamale, pretty much, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and obviously there's a lot of fermented foods in uh, uh, South Asian culture as well. So it's like, it's just kind of closing these gaps of knowledge and making people realize that, oh, this food isn't as out there as I thought it was. It's not all like, bushmeat and road rats or whatever people's ridiculous stereotype is. Um, it's not all greasy and heavy and carb heavy and, 
you know, because a lot of real... American restaurants make it so too. <laughs> That's the other thing. <laughs> they did that. They did it with Indian food as well. Yeah, you know, and this this is why I spend a lot of time now talking about cultural appropriation and. There's just so much education, right? Because the consumer only knows what the consumer has been given in terms of information. And for the most part, you know, for the last 50 years of popular culture, this isn't information that's been translated to anybody at all, um, Mm -hmm. let alone well. (laughs) So, you know, I think we're at a place now, especially in a post-pandemic or mid-pandemic, you know, the effects of the last year have kind of fast-forwarded a lot of conscious thinking, around so many things, whether it's climate change, sustainability, how we treat people who work for us, with us, and you know, the, the key workers of the world, um, but also <laughs> just equal rights. And you know, Consciousness has shifted to a point where I think people are ready now to examine their own purchases and their contribution, whether it's you know, in, implicit or explicit. Or you know, most people don't know that if they're buying Moringa off of a shelf in Holland and Barrett, that they're probably doing somebody in Africa out of money, right? A lot of people don't know that because they don't have the information. So, yeah, I guess I'm, I've moved in a little bit into the educator activist space a, a little bit more aggressively. Um, well, not aggressively. Well, yeah, aggressively. <laughs> but, so, I mean, yeah, I, it, somebody it, was it, talking it, about Moringa as from Australia. And what was that about? Uh, well, Moringa actually grows all over the world. Um, it grows in India. It's been used in Ayurvedic medicine for thousands of years. It grows all across Africa, particularly in Kenya and West Africa, West African countries. Um and yeah, Australia, New Zealand, but I, 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 it won't be indigenous to Australia, I would have thought. I think they probably borrowed that from India and South Asia. Uh-huh. But um, it, I don't know, you know, there's people in Malta growing um, Moringa right now. Uh, there's people in California growing Moringa. It's actually really easy to grow a tree. It's the fastest growing tree in the world. It has zitron in it, which is one of the things that make it such an incredible superfood because it has this... Um, well, I, I'm not a food scientist, so I'm probably not going to explain it very well. In fact, just recently, <laughs> I, pu- I published an article. So on, on today's shows, uh, digital media, if you look up Moringa, Zoe Ajonia, I've just done a whole essay about Moringa, about its health benefits and why it's so really? good for you. But I mean, I tried it. I didn't find it did much for me. But then how well, my question is always about these superfoods or health. How much of it do you have to have to get any effect? You see, that's the key to it, too. I mean, yeah, well, if well, very little is the, is the answer. You, you know, half a teaspoon. If you have moringa tea every day, um, you're getting the amount. I'm pretty sure this is right to say, but you're getting probably about ten times more vitamin C than you would with a glass of orange juice. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's just one aspect of it because it, it's full of antioxidants, right? So it's doing amazing things for all these other parts of your body as well. Um, yeah. So a small amount consistently is going to improve anybody's physiology pretty much unless, you know, there's, there's some warnings around um, women who are pregnant and breastfeeding because there's a specific kind of biology going on for them then. Um, but in its powdered form, um, it is considered, you know, very safe in powdered form. When it's not powdered, like if it's from the seed or from chewing the leaves, you know, there's other 
things going on in terms of how people can digest that. But in its powdered form or in a tea form, it's like super easy to bring into your diet every day. And and honestly, I I encourage anybody from an Australia company. um, It was a tea form. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a bit of moringa. There's so much to, to learn from this book, Zoe. Um, oh, I, I really hope people take it and actually work their way through it because it's so full of information and you, you'll have different points of view about all kinds of things from just reading this, even if you don't cook from it. Although there's some <laughs> recipes I'm already latching on to. <laughs> so. Well, you know what? Send me your address and while I'm here, I can send you some of the spices that you probably don't, um, you can't readily access in your neighbourhood, I'm sure. Um, yeah, no. Send me a note with your address, and I'll pop some spices in the post. I'll send you some grains of Salem, some grains of Paradise. Um, what yeah, what is that? Tell me about that. Grains of Paradise. Yeah. Yeah. So grains of Paradise are from. They're also known as alligator pepper. And there's a lovely little story about this ingredient floating down. Um, like it's like a paradise story. Like a, I think it's like floating down. I want to say the River Nile or the River Eden, but it, it's like a creation story. And <laughs> grains of paradise were there when God turned the lights on, basically. Um, but it's a beautiful. Listen, it's like a little hard peppercorn. It's super, super tiny, um, but the flavour inside is like eucalyptus. It's menthol. Oh yeah. It's citrusy. Um, it's it's just this beautiful, fragrant, aromatic. Um, thing and and it, it, as compared to like coarse ground black pepper which in comparison to me is really dull <laughs> um you know this particular type of peppercorn is just so vibrant and delicious and you only need to use very very small amount of it to get such big flavor so when you're doing like a peppered steak mix or something like that um it's a great thing to add into that or if you're just, you know, I use it every day in replace of coarse ground black pepper, frankly. I, I put it into one of those grinder things and just grind it in the way I would coarse ground black pepper. Um, now, yeah, do you know delicious. about the spice company called Burlap and Barrel? Yeah, we're doing a club with them. I know Ethan. Okay. <laughs> They're my favorites. Yeah, he's great. I mean, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's become, I mean, I... I I was going to say you'd love their newsletter. I love his stories. I know Ethan yeah. and uh, yeah, and um, what's his name? Yeah. Ori. Ori. Ori's on tomorrow. Actually, I can't remember what we're doing tomorrow. Uh, with, <laughs> from the, I mean, we're doing um, uh, burlap and barrel. I can't remember which which uh, spices we're doing. We're doing it ongoing as a season, as a um, series various spices because I think that people um, don't really know that much about it. Now everybody's cooking and it is a cultural vehicle, I think. And so I I just think that he's doing such a good job in in educating people about it. So anyhow, so every two or three months we do a program with Lori. Oh, cool. Well, please, when when you do the spice thing, I would love it if you reference the go through the go through the index in my book of the spice section and ask them what they have and uh-huh. <laughs> whether they're going to get whether they're going to well basically okay. what, what we're doing is we're, because Tunde Wei did like a, a dawa dawa so dawa dawa is one of my favourite ingredients as well fermented corn dough 
and yeah, Tim May Way brought that. Well, I'm sure I'll read about that in the uh, the newsletter. They do a very lengthy newsletter. Yeah. yeah, but we we were all, we're also going to be doing a club with them where we bring some of our Ghana kitchen blends um, and salts like okra salt, for example. Oh, great! Um, um, yeah, we're going to be. Well, it's going to take a minute because Ethan's really busy because he's so because they've, they've exploded with popularity, which is great. Um, yeah. But I think hopefully by the end of the year we'll have some collaboration going on with Burlap and Barrel. So that's oh, good. Okay. I'm glad to hear it. So anyhow, I love meeting you and uh, love talking to you. And uh, hopefully with your next book, we'll do it again. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so Zoe, much. again, listeners, it's Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. And uh, you're you're just going to have a full education on um, too many things to be even listed and, and half an hour interview. So Zoe, thank you very much. I'm always happy with these uh, interviews when I feel like I've learned something. And boy, from today's interviews, I learned a great deal. You sure did. Yeah. So anyhow, so we'll sign off now until next. Yeah, same time, same place next week. So then, bye bye. Yeah, we'll we'll be here. We hope you will be too.